first, a word from our sponsor, the insurance people. Medicare open enrollment has started now through December 7th. Do you need help enrolling? Are you ready to shop your Medicare supplement, Part D medication, or Medicare Advantage plan? The insurance people, located in Illinois, specializes in helping you select the best Medicare option for your needs. You can find them at insurancepl.com. That is insurance, our favorite word, followed by the letters PPL, or call 773-697-8082. Again, insurancepl.com or 773-697-8082. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are here to introduce you today to women over 70, to Ina Pinkney. Is that right, Ina? Ina Pink. That is right. Okay, good. Uh, Ina was the chief owner, uh, chef owner of Ina's, an American food restaurant and a pioneer in Chicago's West Loop Market District. And Ina's closed at the end of 2013. I met Ina through Rebecca Fife, Landmark Pest Maintenance, another trailblazer in her industry. At 78, Ina is even more well-known as a frequent and welcome guest on radio, local news, and cable TV. She's done interviews on shows in the U.S., Canada, and Germany, and appeared in a national Quaker Oats commercial as herself, the Breakfast Queen. <laughs> We're honored to welcome you, Ina, to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Your work yes. is... Yeah, glad to have you. Your work in the culinary industry is legend. And the awards you receive speak to your deep interest in justice for culinary workers and excellence in the kitchen. There's a documentary about you, I've learned, which is yeah. Breakfast at Ina's. True. And your recipes have been syndicated globally and featured in many cookbooks. Yet, by your own admission... The most significant title you hold is polio survivor, and you tirelessly advocate to make the public aware of the latest late effects of polio and the need for vaccinations. So let's start. When we, you and I talked, you told me about a letter you wrote your six-year-old self. And let's start by discussing that your experience with contracting polio and that and tell us a little bit about the letter you wrote. Um, I'm so glad we started there because when I talk about my story, um, I say that I got polio at 18 months and I got that 11 years before there was a vaccine. And my father came into my crib to take me out and I tried to stand up and I couldn't. And I tried again and I fell down. And in that second, he knew that the polio epidemic that was sweeping New York City had come to Brooklyn, New York. And he picked me up and took me to the corner in our building. There was a separate entrance for our family doctor. And Dr. Suna was there and he did have a lab in his office. And he said, I think we have a problem here. And my father held me tight across his midsection. And Dr. Suna did a spinal tap and checked it out. And sure enough, it was polio. So they took me together to the hospital. But when my father saw that with children were left in cribs and in beds forever, and there were no adults around because it was a quarantining situation. And so 
you were allowed to see your child for one hour once a week, he said to Dr. Suna, I'm going to take her home. And Dr. Suna said, I agree and let us together, we'll figure this out. So they took me home and um, called the March of Dimes, who said, well, you know, we just have to wait till the infection clears, the, the fever drops, and we'll see what's left. We don't know exactly what's left. And so I began my life in that difficult way, um, not being able to run and play. I sat with adults the whole time. I learned adult conversation. I learned to be a committed listener. And when I was six, they told me that I was going to the hospital. Now, remember all this time I had heard uh, that people went to the hospital not to get well, but to, to die. It's 1949 and they go to die. And I had no grief for a life not lived. I was six. And so I thought, well, I get six of whatever this is. And I heard that somebody else got 48 of whatever this is. And so I just thought this was what I get. And so they took me to the hospital. And when I woke up from surgery, um, in that nanosecond of consciousness, I thought they had made a mistake. And so I understood getting a second chance. And so everybody in my life has always gotten a second chance. And I think back to that pivotal age. And I thought if I could have only told myself what my life would look like and not be confined to this chair or confined to these braces or confined to a life of being marginalized and ostracized and bullied and ignored, I, I can't even imagine how extraordinary, you know, my life would have been in my own mind at the time. So I sat down and wrote myself a letter to my six-year-old self. And in it, I told her, me, all the things that were about to happen in this life that I could never have imagined. And it was extraordinary to write it all down. And I didn't even get all of it in. And so it was quite something like wiping the brow of Mikhail Baryshnikov in the wings of the ballet, like being treated with great kindness by Anthony Bourdain, by feeding Julia Child and Wolfgang Puck and all the chefs in Chicago. Um, I am speaking at World Polio Day on a global live stream around the globe um, to talk about being a polio survivor. All of these things happened to me. And you mentioned skydiving, and that was just one of the many things that I knew I needed to try in this life. So that was the letter that I wrote to myself. And um, when I look at it now, I realize how impactful my life has been for me. How old were you when you wrote the letter? Um, I wrote it about three or four years ago, so maybe 75. Okay. Yeah, after I had told that story one more time, I realized that six-year-old person was pivotal for me. I mean, I, was, I thought they were taking me to die, and so I have not been afraid to die every day since. I have no fear whatsoever. And so that taught me to be fearless and that I should say yes to almost everything that came my way because I had the second chance and I also was not afraid to die. In our previous conversation, I was really struck by that fact that your attitude is so positive and you definitely look at everything from that angle, from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So, so, so let's leave polio for just a moment 
And let's talk about your fabulous career as a culinary artist. And how did that all begin? So I had 21 jobs in my life and I was fired from 19 of them. (laughs) And just as I was about to start my 21st job, I was walking along the street and I stepped on a piece of the reader newspaper and it was for a balloon delivery service. And I looked down and this light went on and I said, isn't it interesting that for your birthday, people send you balloons and singing telegrams and sometimes strippers, but nobody sends you a cake. And I was up on the roof deck of our building and I just said, what did you think about a tuxedoed butler bringing you a cake and and with a sparkler and then instead of writing on the cake, maybe a parchment scroll done in calligraphy that says, happy birthday, Gail, we think you're the best friend we ever had. And everybody is like, wow, what a great idea. Nobody's ever done that. So I went down to my apartment and I started to write out all the things I thought I needed to do to make that happen. And the phone rang. Hi, Ina. My name is Diane. I live in the building. I heard you upstairs. I got your number from the doorman. I'd like to order your service for Friday. (laughs) And I did what every entrepreneur does. I said, okay. (laughs) And so I was was reading the New York Times and there was a chocolate cake by Craig Claiborne and it had no flour in it. And it looked like a dense, fudgy chocolate cake. And I went, oh my God, I would eat that cake right now. I said, maybe I'll make that cake and that will be the cake. So I said, done. And I did have some chocolate in the house and I did have some eggs. And I had never separated an egg. I had never beaten an egg white. I had never melted chocolate. And so the cake was a disaster. (laughs) So I said, okay. I went to the grocery store and I bought enough ingredients for three cakes more. And I thought, if I can't figure this out by that third cake, meaning number four, I will go and buy one of those horrible layer cakes with Kirschwasser that was all over Chicago in 1980. And so I did it. And by that last cake, it worked. And my big lesson was, if you can read, you can bake. (laughs) And my husband got dressed up in a tuxedo and went downtown on that Friday and delivered the cake with the parchment scroll. And everybody went crazy. (laughs) And the word spread like wildfire until Wally Phillips called me on the air to order one for Irv Cups in it. Oh, wow. And that's the old days, you know, and that's how it started. And then I was baking all the time. I hired all these out of work actors to deliver the cakes because people were calling. And then, of course, I got fired from that job. Um, And then I thought, well, I better get going with this thing. And I did. And that's when you what? I taught myself how to bake Uh Uh and then I took a storefront and I taught myself how to bake, but everything I, and every one of those 21 jobs, I learned something that I needed to have in this business. I learned accounting and marketing and sales, and I learned how to purchase. I mean, I, everything I ever did taught me how to do that business. Were you firing yourself from these 19 jobs? It sounds like you were working for yourself. No, that, well, that's, in essence, I was. I could never fit the corporate culture. So my department always ran differently and always ran better. And there was flex time before there was such a thing. And I just couldn't fit. Mm-hmm. I tried. I really tried. But it wasn't going to work. <laughs> and, and so what made you open up a restaurant that had a whole lot more than just cakes in it? Yeah, from cake so, to breakfast. 
<laughs> right. So I ate out breakfast almost every day because it was the only time I got to see my husband. And once I got in the bakery, I had no idea how long I would be there. And so we started out each day with breakfast. So we ate and there were six or seven places that we could go to on the way to the storefront on Wrightwood. And my God, it, we had to figure out what we wanted to eat before we left the house. Oh, I'm in the mood for a good omelet. Maybe there was two. I feel like French toast today. There was one. So we were sitting there one day and I said, why can't anybody make a great breakfast? And he said, so let's get this straight now. Every day you go to that place and you play with butterflower, sugar and eggs. What are we eating? I went, butterflower, sugar and eggs. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to open a breakfast restaurant like nobody has ever seen. And I did. Mm -hmm. Was that the first one was on Wrightwood, right? No, that was my bakery. And the first one was on Webster and Bissell. Not Webster, that's right. Yes. Yeah. I Webster remember being and there. And <laughs> when was that? On a, what, what period of time was that? So uh, 1980, I started baking at home. And 82, I moved into a storefront. And then in 1990, we renovated a space and opened in 91 on Webster and Bissell. And how long were you there? Five years, and then we moved down to Ontario Street, and it was an untenable um, business partnership that I was in. So I left the business and then looked for my own place, and that's when I moved to Randolph Street. And everybody said, "Where are you going?" <laughs> Where are you going? And I said, "I'm going to West Randolph Street in the West Loop." And they go, "Oh, that? Oh no!" And I went, "I have free parking." They go, "Oh, we'll be there." <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. So just can you describe a little bit about the about the your breakfast restaurant? What made it? What did you do to make it special? To make it stand out? So I love hotel dining rooms. I love the quiet. I love the napery. I like the glasses. I like the orange juice being poured. Um, and so there was nothing like that except at a hotel dining room. And I took the notion of a diner and a, 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 a hotel dining room. And I went right in the middle, right in the middle. I found this market niche that nobody had done. So it would be a fine dining breakfast restaurant and it would be quiet and there was no music. It was carpeted and it had uh, acoustic tiles in the ceiling and it was extraordinary, just extraordinary. And the orange juice was freshly squeezed. And the coffee, I imported coffee from Seattle in those days because there was nothing here except Stewart's. And it was unbelievable how expensive it was, but it didn't matter. People were, somebody even wrote to me two weeks ago and said, what was the coffee that you served? And this is going back a lot of years. I've been closed eight years now. So um, I knew what I wanted. And, you know, when you find your market niche and then all you need is word of mouth, those are the five words that will set you up for success. Plus, I had a, a years of feeding people. And so my reputation was solid. Oh, she does great desserts. She'll have a good breakfast. Mm -hmm. There was a line waiting to get in the day we opened. Mm -hmm. I stood in your line many times. <laughs> Bless you, darling. You're an original, original. Original. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and did you also sell baked goods? I did. I brought the bakery part with me. And so there was a big case that you could buy and order. And yeah, I did a lot of the baking for a while. And then I had to get somebody to help. 
Um, this is where the late effects of polio started to show up. And then I couldn't stand as long and I couldn't do the kind of work that I had done earlier. So um, things began to change slowly, but they, I could tell they were changing. Let's talk a little bit about the late effects of polio. So what does that mean? So somewhere in the, in the 80s, um, and remember I had polio in 1944. So I'm in my 40s and something's not right. You know, I'm, something's, everything feels off and, and muscle weakness. And I'd go to a doctor and they go, well, you're aging. And I went, no, 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 I'm 40 something years old. This is different. And there was no such thing as post polio syndrome in the books yet. And I had mind numbing exhaustion and I was, things were just not right. And you ask any polio survivor, they know their bodies better than anybody. So I read that there was a conference being held in St. Louis and it was from a post polio international organization. And I drove to St. Louis and I walked into the, the, the big room uh, the grand ballroom where this is being held. And I opened the door and there's over 300 people with the same issues. And I felt, oh my God, I now know, I know what's going on. So I've been following that for many years. So post polio syndrome is a weakening of everything because polio touched every single thing in the spinal column. And just because I was paralyzed in one leg doesn't mean that my swallowing isn't affected or that my arms, you know, sometimes don't work as well as they should. So that's what the late effects really show up as. And, and what, what do you, what kind of exercise or things do you do to, to support you? Know, at the beginning, they told us exercise was good. And then they realized that we were wearing out all of the little nerves that were left. And so if I could take back every hour of jazzercise in my pink leotards and my purple leg warmers that I did in the 80s, I would take back every hour and I would be in better shape now. So the motto is conserve to preserve. And that's what we all do now. So exercise is not part of the regime. No. Plus, I couldn't walk anymore. I used to walk a mile every single morning, and so I couldn't do that. So swimming, I've been doing aqua therapy after I broke my leg three years ago. And so that has really helped a tremendous amount to get me back up because I only just started walking again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but you continued. I, I think the, the amazing part of your story, Ina, is that you continued to be creative and fearless, and trying new things. And what what do you think was that drive that kept you striving that way? Um, I owe so much of that to my father, who was my champion, who always said, I have such confidence in you. And if I was looked like I was about to fall, he was there to catch me. But if I fell out of his reach, he would always say, you only have to get up one more time than you fall. And I have lived with that motto always. And because I am fearless, I am never reckless. And so I am prepared. I went skydiving. I took the 40-minute course. I made sure I understood the equipment. I wanted to see them pack the parachute. I am always prepared. I learned how to ski on one leg and I skied the Alps and I skied the Rockies. I was prepared with the best 
equipment, one ski and some outriggers and got the best instructor that I could who taught disabled people to ski. So fearless has nothing to do with reckless, but I will try everything if it's of interest to me, mm -hmm. everything well-prepared. Hmm. And is there anything that is not of interest to you? Very rarely do I come <laughs> up against something like that. Thank you for noticing that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, you've won so many awards and you've been, uh, you've been a, a true advocate for polio. Uh, you know, what, so what, what does life look like now, Ina? So when I closed the restaurant, people said to me, so what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And I said, I think I'm going to get a rocking chair. And maybe after six months, I'll rock. <laughs> I had no idea. Mm -hmm. um, I thought I'd be home watching TV. I had no idea. And then the documentary came out. And it was in 48 film festivals around the country. And 31 of them wanted me there to talk about it and answer questions. So I traveled nonstop. And then my cookbook, my memoir cookbook came out. And then I was on a book tour with that. And then because of my brand, and I was still the breakfast queen, I had a column in the Chicago Tribune, companies hired me to speak at conferences about breakfast. And that was extraordinary. I was not an infomercial person. I would never say, here's the product and I want you to buy the product. They would do the product intro and they would introduce me as the breakfast maven who would talk about the global influences on breakfast. And then I would say, thank you very much. And I would leave the stage and then they would do the spiel for the product. I never wanted to be an infomercial person for, for that kind of thing. And so all of that was unexpected and extraordinary and magical. I mean, I'm in, I'm, I'm open. I'm in Alaska, you know, I'm in right by Wasilla where you know who lives. And I, and I open my door and there's a moose outside and I'm going, this is the best day of my life. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine what was gonna happen. Everywhere I went, I added on a couple of days and I would say to the, my, my host or my handler, I used to call them my handler, please show me what you're proudest of here. And they would take me on a ride and we would go wherever we would go. And then I'd get on the plane going, oh, my God, was that the best ever? I'm, I'm curious about you said something about when you're speak when you were speaking about global influences on breakfast or. Yes, because um, for, for the longest time, remember when I started, it was two eggs over easy with hash browns and whole wheat toast. And then all of a sudden, um, people started adding in ingredients that we had not seen before, like shakshuka, you know, which is um, uh, Middle Eastern and it's all tomato based and it's kind of spicy and it has poached eggs in it. And people were, were bringing in all kinds of tastes. And why? Because we were having more and more immigrants in the kitchen and they would make a family meal and, and the chef would go, what is this? And they say, well, we make this when I grew up. This is what we ate for breakfast. And so it all began like that. Plus the globalization, you can go anywhere and buy spices that you never even knew existed when you were young, you know? And so that's what was happening. So I would talk to them about what they needed to bring into the menu and give them um, trend analysis and menu mm -hmm. futurist work. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know. I had a good time. I had a good time. I'm One of the things that means the world to me, though, is I, I reach out to almost every young woman chef in Chicago. Mm. Um, and I invite them to breakfast or I introduce myself and say, I know your world. And so anytime you are having an issue, you need to tell me and I will help you think it through and work it out. And if you're not in the right kitchen, I will help you find the right kitchen. Um, and that means the world to me. And when I decided to give away all my cookbooks, I invited them all here and said, take your pick. That, was, that strikes me as being a very difficult thing to do. Was it? No, letting go, letting go is probably the easiest thing I do. You know, I had a mug when we opened the restaurant on Randolph Street. I had a mug that I had for 20 years, a white mug with red hearts on it. And it was my mug. And I said to the staff as we were training, this is my mug. And when I come to work, I would like this mug to be available to me. Use any other mug in this place for yourself. But this is mine. And they all went, we got it, boss. We got it. And I got there the day we opened at five o'clock in the morning. And I turned on the espresso machine and I made myself the most perfect latte ever in my most perfect mug. And I sat in the middle of my restaurant before <laughs> anything happened in there. And I drank my latte thinking, this is a magical day. And then I put my mug in the dishwasher and it broke. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You see, everybody does that. But it doesn't matter because I own that moment. Right. It wasn't about the mug. Can't take it the moment. It was about the me. moment. Mm -hmm. I own that moment. So letting go for me is simple. <laughs> yeah. So so why is it important for you to continue to advocate? Well, I I would like to think that when I take my last breath, that the question I will ask myself is, did you do enough? And I want the answer to be yes, within my frame and within my limitations and within my world. I, I want to do enough. And to think that in my lifetime, polio can be wiped out mm -hmm. would be, would be my, my goal and my dream for my last breath. What is the stance on vaccinations for polio now? I mean, do people ordinarily get a polio vaccine? They usually do, but we have always had very strong anti-vaxxers. And there are whole communities within the country, and Orange County was known for that. And they didn't understand, and I'm going now pre-COVID, that polio was a plane ride away because uh, there were the endemic countries were Afghanistan and Pakistan. And anybody could be incubating it, and it could take two weeks. And they could get on a plane and they could get off the plane in California and go visit people in, in a community with no vaccination. And we would have a polio outbreak mm -hmm. in that community. So it was a, uh, a plane right away. Right now, we have not had a new case of polio in a couple of months in the world. And in 1982, there were 350,000 cases, mm -hmm. not in this hemisphere, but in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. So Rotary has been working really, really hard. And when I go and speak about it, I always end it by saying, I know you have donor fatigue. Mm -hmm. I know you've been raising money since the 80s and we thought this would be over by 2000. And I just need you to know that what you do matters. Plus the fact that everything they have learned about inoculation and spreading out the vaccine 
they share with the with the world when there is an outbreak of any other disease like we did with Ebola. The polio workers go right to it and say, this is what we learned and this is the refrigeration thing we do on a bicycle and this is how it works. So that's, that matters to me, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Salks, and when they asked him if he was gonna patent the vaccine, he said, you can't patent the sun. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me, what, what do you think about your own aging? All right, do you think about it at all? Um, I think about it and I think how glorious it is that our bodies are these magical machines. You know, everybody was fetching about menopause and I went, this is what we're supposed to do. This is the way it is. <laughs> you know, isn't it amazing that it works the way it does? Um, so I, I wake up every day. I mean, I, I have the same issues that some people have. I'm, my recall is slower than it has been. Um, I definitely have arthritis, you know, in my body parts that don't feel very good, but that's a small price to pay for having lived as well as I have. So I have no issues. I talked to a couple of, I have a lot of children, not by birth, but by, by love. I have a family of choice. And I said to them one day, you know, of all your friends, I'm your oldest friend. And so the chances of me dying first are really great unless somebody you know young hits a tragedy. I just want you to know whatever day that is, it's okay with me. And they kind of looked at each other and I said, is that all right with you that we're bringing this subject up? And they said, yes. As a matter of fact, we were talking about it when a friend's father died and we wanted to know if it was okay if we have your memorial lunch at our restaurant. Yes, I said, <laughs> absolutely yes. I said, but can I have a tasting first? <laughs> you want to approve so, it. <laughs> so I have no issues with aging. You know, yeah, the body breaks down in certain ways, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean we can't have joy. Right, right. And and is there something you'd like to tell all the younger people you mentor or all the younger women that are, are, uh, I always tell them one thing, one thing in particular, it takes less energy to be courageous than it does to be afraid. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's my motto always takes less energy to be courageous than it does to be afraid. Mm-hmm. So fear nothing. <laughs> well, this is terrific, and we appreciate your being here. We do. Uh, we Thank love you. your story. Well, Thank you for asking such um, meaningful questions for me. Yeah, you're very welcome. <laughs>